Hello and welcome to the Logistics Podcast. I'm your host, Bonnie Cliff, digital content producer for the Logistics Channel. Thanks for joining me. It seems like just yesterday that logistics professionals gathered in their thousands at the NEC in Birmingham for IMHX. The free conference at the exhibition provided attendees with wall-to-wall learning opportunities. From a beginner's guide to automation strategy, to a guest lecture on bimodal supply chains from Cranfield University. You may also be aware that we scheduled a panel in collaboration with XBO Logistics on the topic of how to tackle the decarbonisation of heavy goods vehicles. Unfortunately, we were unable to run this during the event due to a panellist falling ill. However, all is not lost. Just as everyone has become accustomed to over the last few years, we were able to gather all of the panellists together over the internet to give you this special podcast episode. The panel will discuss the current technology lag for HGVs as well as the policy landscape. They will cover the fixed dates for no new diesel vehicles and the emissions trading scheme introduction for the transport and logistics sector. Other topics of discussion include the role of low carbon fuels in filling the policy and technology gap and the importance of infrastructure and investment to facilitate zero emission vehicle uptake. The panel consists of Dr Nicholas Head, Environmental and Sustainability Lead at XBO Logistics, Matt Pumphrey, CEO of Innovation Gateway, and the moderator, Denise Beadell, Public Policy Manager at Logistics UK. I'll hand you over to them now. Welcome to this podcast on heavy vehicle decarbonisation. First up, I'd like to introduce Nick Head. Would you like to introduce yourself and what you do at XPO? Thanks, Denise. Yeah, Dr. Nicholas Head. I'm the Head of Sustainability for XPO UK and Ireland, and I look at everything sustainability, but my remit also extends into the wider ESG piece and specifically looking at heavy fleet decarbonisation. And also on the call is Matt Humphrey. So welcome. Would you like to just introduce yourself? My name is Matt Humphrey. I'm Chief Executive Officer of Innovation Gateway. We're an organisation that works with large organisations, corporates and public sector bodies, supporting their transition from strategy to action through the deployment of innovation and collaboration. And indeed, we're working with Nick on our HGV Zero group, where we've brought together a number of large logistics operators to collaborate and work together on this rather large topic of decarbonisation of the HGV world. Thank you very much and welcome. I'm going to be facilitating a conversation between you two today. My name is Denise Bidell. I'm Public Policy Manager at Logistics UK and I lead on vans and the decarbonisation agenda here at Logistics UK. If you're not familiar with us, we're one of the biggest business groups in the UK supporting, shaping and standing up for efficient logistics. And we represent all of logistics across the whole of the supply chain, including members from the road, rail, sea and air industries, as well as the buyers of freight services. We've literally just passed our 20,000 member mark as well, which is quite exciting. So without any further ado, let's kick off. How about what are the main three areas of focus required to facilitate the transition to decarbonising heavy vehicles? And by heavy vehicles, I mean that 26 tonne to 44 tonne classes. Perhaps, Nick, would you like to kick off on this one? From my perspective, the three areas would be the vehicles themselves. We've seen a lot of progress in that area so far. It seems to be moving a lot quicker, and that's everything from battery electric through to hydrogen. 
And then the other areas would be the investment side of things that sit there, but also collaboration and what happens in that space around the investment as well. But then the final one, and probably the most important one, is the infrastructure piece and what that means. And that's anything from the charging infrastructure that goes with battery electric all the way through to refueling infrastructure for hydrogen. And those are probably the, the three main areas of focus I think are most relevant at the moment. Would you concur or have you got some alternative views? I think Nick's hit the nail on the head completely. And I think being the one sort of novice HGV person in the room, I'm coming at this whole sort of area from a sustainability angle, but around operations. So I think it's critical for me, I would probably put the order the other way around. I think the infrastructure is the critical component and pinch point that we're going to face. And the OEMs are working, be they hydrogen or be they electric, and will bring to market those products. But unless we have the infrastructure in place, which is the time consuming, then I think um, you know it's, it's going to stall or slow down the transition that we need. I would totally agree with you there, Matt. I think the infrastructure is something that is is quickly emerging as one of the biggest challenges that I'm finding when we talk to our members. Many of them will have trialled electric vehicles in small numbers to check concept works. But the moment it's scaled up, particularly if you've got a large fleet and you're based at a depot, sometimes finding you haven't quite got enough electricity supply is a big, big problem and a big price tag usually. Um, But equally, if you've got vehicles that are being kept elsewhere, such as driver's homes, then the public charging infrastructure is also part of it. But if you look across at the other modes as well, you know, on the rails, etc., the rail electrification it's taking its time and there's still going to be some gaps, which I think those gaps, how are we going to address those? Have we got any thoughts on the alternative fuels other than electric? From my perspective on that one, Denise, and probably extending into that electrification piece as well, that's a real challenge. And I don't think a lot of the operators in particular have got their heads on that fully yet, it's particularly in the 3PL world. Um, I think some of the more larger organisations with bigger backers, going like retail and things like that, they're starting to get a grip on that. But certainly from a 3PL perspective, that's still a big challenge. But looking at that alternative fuels piece, we've already started looking at things like HVO and as many other operators have and what that means and LNG and and what have you from the past. But are they going to be enough to get us to the point where we need to have a transition point? I'm not so sure at the moment, but it's looking as if it may move in that direction. The government is still doing that review at the moment, which is a bit open-ended, especially with the revolving door that's going on at the moment. But the alternative fuel piece is certainly a real opportunity, actually, to be fair. You know, if you think about the HVO side of things in particular, and what you can get from that, it is a real opportunity. But I think there's still a lot of work to do on that to address that. Absolutely. Matt, I'd bring you here on this issue about alternative fuels. Many operators talk about them as being a, an interim technology, but are they really connected properly to the whole decarbonisation agenda or are they just a stepping stone? They're a stepping stone and potentially quite an important one. We as an organisation are completely agnostic as to potential technologies, potential solutions. It's really trying to identify what's right for particular organisations and the people we support. And there is an awful lot of work that's been done around synthetic fuels or e-fuels as they're now being termed. But the reality of being able to scale those rapidly enough to be able to supply into an HGV market in the UK, let alone across Europe, is questionable. And so I still think that there is potentially a role to play, certainly as next mentioned, HBO. But I think, you know, ultimately it's going to be a, a hydrogen or a, an electric play further down the line, certainly in the in the UK. I do think there is a difference because of the uh, distances involved and the types of logistics fleets that are operating in Europe. It's probably going to be a different picture. So it's going to be very much horses for courses, depending on where you're operating. 
Absolutely. So what can we do to actually help this accelerate? Because I've heard the word uncertainty quite a lot and we still don't quite know with the heavy vehicle sector, you know, what the technology is going to be. We're aware of trials that are going on. And Nick, I know you've got some some views about what the trials will achieve and how they're operating. For the heavy sector, are those trials actually looking at the right things? Do you think they're going to confirm those phase-out dates that we've heard? So there's two questions in one there. Just easy questions as well, Denise. Just an easy Uh, question. (laughs) So the first one, to address the first one, looking at the trials and the funding opportunities, I think Zerft is probably going to go quite a long way to doing that. So zero emissions road freight trials. I think that pot of money will start to be a signpost as to where we can get to. The issue there is where we're starting from in terms of the two technologies. So if it's going to be battery electric or it's going to be hydrogen, it's not quite starting from the same position. So there is a risk there of a very good technology like hydrogen may have been crowded out for certain use cases. That's a concern. But also it is an opportunity for the hydrogen sector to move forward a bit quicker because they're going to get a real injection of funds to go into that space and, and look at that. And also giving that certainty in terms of a pipeline of orders that's going to come through to do that. So from that perspective, I think there's an opportunity there. The hydrogen piece is the piece at risk. And then if we think about the deadlines for the no new diesel for heavy trucks, you know, 2035 and 2040, they're a real challenge in the current space. You know, is the technology going to move fast enough to get there? I think that's an open question still. But I think going back to what Matt was saying before about the alternative fuels, I think that's the bridging piece that's probably going to start pushing us towards getting to that. And then I would say that with the direction of travel from the vehicle side of things, setting aside the infrastructure, we'll come back to that in a minute. But from the vehicle side of things, the 26 tonne element is is certainly moving in that right direction. And that's going across the different vehicle types plus operational profiles that sit with that. So that's certainly moving in that direction. From the heavy vehicle side of it, it's going to be a real opportunity, an exciting opportunity for the sector to look at that and, and see if there really is something there that can be done. You know, we can prove as many of these hard use cases as we can, you know, even if it's a case of you're not quite going to get there, but you're going to get to this point. You know, I think that's a real opportunity for us to to build on and then move the sector forward from there. And then if you bring in people like Matt with the innovation space that sits around that, then that's a real leverage point for bringing more innovation into that space to get to that next stage and potentially bring more of that hydrogen into there. Another question for you, Matt, there. Is there going to be enough innovation waiting in the wings that could be ready in time with these wonderful deadline dates? It's a tough one to answer because what do we mean by ready? And I think one of the important points is around what do we also mean by innovation? Because I think what what we've found as an organisation is it's often best practice, it's it's often sort of learnings that uh, certain organisations have had around specific areas that once translated to another organisation are innovative by default because they've not been used before in that particular organisation and can help make a change. If we're looking at, uh, you know, there's obviously an awful lot of money being poured into uh, by the OEMs into the drive for electrification for hydrogen vehicles. There's no doubt that that's only going to accelerate. But I think at the moment, the big challenge we have is certainty or the lack thereof, certainly in the UK market. Therein lies a challenge that we face immediately, really, around having some clear signals from government and DFT about where they're going to help support, where they would like to see this sort of space be moved. If we look at, say, for example, the bus fleets, you know, there is obviously a huge amount of investment going in there being supported by government local authorities. And it seems to me that the HGV logistics fleets are being left pretty much to their own devices. So not only are they facing a lack of funding support, obviously, accepting that the ZERF funding trials are due to be coming or starting early 2023. It seems to me that if we're going to bring in the private capital and the third party capital, it's going to be needed to grow this and drive this transition. 
the finance world does not like uncertainty. The longer that goes on, the slower the change will be. Just to illustrate the, the sort of mountain that I think we've got to climb, before I came on this call, I checked what the most up-to-date figures were. For 2021, because we haven't had the figures yet for 2022, 18.2% of the car fleet that are registered out there on UK roads are plug-in vehicles. For vans, it's almost 4%. I suspect it's tipped over that now. But for HGVs at the start of the year, it was 0.3%. And for the bus and coach sector, it's over 11% now. So having said that, starting from a very low base, and it did say that the new registrations had changed by over 800%. So they went from 16 registrations of HGVs that were plug-in vehicles in 2020 to last year, 145. So I say very low, but I think it does show the scale of the issue that we've got there. And I think even the vans have still got to catch up too as well. We've got a long way to go. So in terms of plugins, that's proven technology electricity, I would say. There's some practicalities, I think, to overcome in the heavy goods vehicles, but at least we understand how electricity works. But do we really understand how hydrogen works? Is that going to be a way forward, do you think? There's no doubt that hydrogen has got a significant role to play in the decarbonisation of the UK, you know, between now and you know, 2040, 2050. But how much of that is going to be within the HGV space? There are undoubtedly going to be specific environments. So JCBs, diggers, those sort of heavy use items. Hydrogen looks like a sensible route. I'm not an expert by any stretch in the logistics space, but certainly from the engagement that I've had with the logistics businesses that we're currently working with, it appears that electric is going to be the favoured route. Now, we need to find out and we need to understand. I think there's still a lot of challenge around the total cost of ownership, understanding what the longevity of the vehicles are, battery degradation. So there's still a lot of unknowns out there that, that need to be filled in. And that's part of what you know the group that Nick and I are involved with, with HGV Zero, are trying to find out, trying to bring the use cases, understand who's trialling what, who's working where in this space, and has therefore got use cases to share amongst other organisations. Yeah. Nick, do you think the case is strong enough for hydrogen? beyond being I, interesting at the moment? <laughs> no, I do. I do, I do think it's a, there is a good case for hydrogen. Do I necessarily see it as being road transport and road freight? Not necessarily wholly that way, but there is certainly a case for using hydrogen for energy generation and, and heat networks and that kind of thing without a shadow of doubt, and heavy industry in particular. But those competing demands may be not so much a barrier to uptake in the, in the road freight sector, it's more easy in terms of applications. And as I mentioned before about the, the battery electric side of it, and then what Matt was just alluding to in terms of the investors want uncertainty, operators want certainty as well. And EV is pretty much there or thereabouts, the infrastructure piece notwithstanding. The hydrogen isn't quite there. And if we talk about the total cost of ownership, which Matt just mentioned there, if you stack that up currently between the two, then the hydrogen doesn't compare as a total cost of ownership piece. So it's very, very difficult to make that case for the businesses. However, putting all that negative aside, the actual technology is very, very good. And if you think about hydrogen as just being that piece where you store an energy for a long period of time, as opposed to producing energy and then having to use it straight away for renewables, there is a real opportunity there as a vector for energy and holding it in there. So I think that the hydrogen overall technology space is probably going to be there for a long term. Where it sits as the best use case is still an open question. And I think there are very strong indications that it can be used in other modes of transport in particular as opposed to just road freight. However, they can be complementary as well. 
I think you're absolutely right, Nick. I think that's where hydrogen has a role to play. Certainly heavy industry. You look at some of the work that Tata Steel are doing. You look at Vattenfall and SSAB around green steel. Suddenly if those sectors start really moving, green cement, similarly, then the demand on the hydrogen is going to be huge. And then obviously that's before we even get down to the, the question of what colour that particular hydrogen is. There's an assumption that it's green, but there are currently 13 different colours of hydrogen, depending right. on where they're sourced. Yes, if you go onto National Grid's website, they've got a handy table there. There's some colours in there I didn't even know hydrogen could be, including turquoise was one of them. And I can't remember what that one actually is about. But I think it sounds like we've got quite a few gaps here. So what's, what do you see the role of government in being in actually helping these? You know, are there some things that the government can provide more certainty, perhaps for a clear roadmap? Yes, we've got those quite challenging phase out dates for heavy vehicles. But what more do we actually need to do? Do we need to understand more about what taxation could be, what fiscal levers are likely to be used? We're against some very harsh economic realities at the moment, not just in the UK, but I think globally. So have you got some thoughts on what support? I, th I think there's definitely an area here, one a particular bugbear of mine is around the enhanced capital allowances, where previous incumbents, you know, a lot of it, the, the mantra was around growth and around support. Now there's a prime opportunity to grab the whole sort of net zero agenda and invest in UK PLCs, the logistics space being one. But if at the moment that investment from a capital perspective, and let's be honest, getting hydrogen or, or BEV trucks or vans is expensive currently, that's where I think the support should be pushed. This is not about handouts. This is about providing signals that are going to enable investors to come in behind and support the deployment of capital to get these assets on the ground. That's really interesting. I've looked into the capital allowances as well with regards to the paying for the cost of the upgrade of electricity supply to a depot. I'm not talking about the grid upgrades. There's a separate funding mechanism there. But actually, it's not an asset that you own, but it's the one that you and you alone use when it comes into your depot. Nick, do you have any views on this? I do indeed. I would definitely concur with what Matt just said about the enhanced capital allowances and the whole fiscal piece that sits around there. From our perspective as operators, we don't want hands from government. We just want a little bit of clarity as to where they want us to go, and then we will invest in that as long as we know there is a reasonable timetable for us to build to that investment. Just give us the chance to be able to put the investment in place and we can do it. And we've proven as a logistics sector that we're quite willing to invest in new technology and areas. So we're more than happy to do that as a sector. Just needs that little bit more clarity as to this is the longer term plan in terms of filling in the gaps from the targets are and then what that means from our side to operate, and then give us a little bit more flexibility. You know, if you're gonna do derogations on weight and that kind of stuff around trucks, do it across the board. Don't put a cap on it at certain vehicle types, put it across the board so we can make that allowance for it. And then again, that gives more certainty to investors to be able to get into the space and then innovate the, the price downwards. Absolutely, and you touched there on some regulatory sides of things as well. I mean, I was actually in a conversation with the members a few days ago and we were talking about regulatory lag. One of the things that Logistics UK is calling for is a fundamental review and reform of the regulatory weight thresholds. As one of my colleagues said to um, a few weeks ago, by 2030, alternatively fuel vans are actually going to be normal vans and it's the diesel and petrol ones that will actually be the alternative fuel and dying out and that is going to apply right across all vehicles and vessels and aircraft at some point so when we actually start to look at it in the round are there any areas of regulatory reform that you would like to see them start with because it's 
massive. And I mean, I would actually say we need to be getting on with this fairly quickly. You know, that first phase out date for vans is less. Well, we'll be just over seven years away, which is one van replacement cycle away. That's a good way of looking at it in terms of replacement cycles. You know, if you think about the the target for HGVs, it's only three cycles away. That's that's not a long period of time at all. You know, we can do the next round, but then in that second round, we need to be thinking about, well, what does that mean from the next technology? And then the third round, you have to be fully committed to it if you're going to do it as a, a scale. So from that perspective, you know, we need to have that addressing of that, that lag, as you call it, from the policy point of view. Whether that's looking at specific things like derogations, licensing, whatever else. But then you've got the other added element that you need to bring into the space, which is trying to get people to come and drive the vehicles or work in the warehouses and, and all the rest of it. You know, that's 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 still a challenge. You know, how can we do regulatory things that would support people coming in, upskilling and, and doing all of that kind of piece? You know, there needs to be more of a, a framework of regulation around that to encourage people to see as a, a long term career prospect as well. You're doing a huge amount of work on that yourself, Denise, within Logistics UK. You know, is it something that we can bring together as a more holistic approach to bringing that forward? Absolutely. Generation Logistics, I think you're referring to, which is a joint campaign that we've got with other trade associations and government are actually backing that. I would say to the new uh, Prime Minister, I hope that you continue to support this because it's really important that we do get those new entrants into our industry. Lorry driver average ages are increasing but it needs to be about much more than just drivers our whole industry is going to be going through some enormous changes over the next 10 to 15 years we're having to learn new technologies very very quickly we've had diesel and petrol for over 100 years we know how that works and yet these new fuels some of which we're not even sure about yet we're going to have to develop expertise and for a period of time we're going to have to run these two skill sets alongside each other while still actually delivering our operational requirements to our customers to make sure that they get the service that they're looking for. So Matt, how do you sort of view the skill discussion? Are there things that you feel would actually help with that recruitment area that we need to sort of pre-promoting? It's very similar to probably 15 years ago when I when I was working in the energy services space and we were sort of trying to get renewable energy into the, into the market. There's a lot of education. So it just seems to me that uh, this it's, uh, education is a key component of, of a transition within any part of the market. Again, as I said earlier, I've, I'm sort of fairly fresh into the logistics world. And that I had certain preconceived ideas and certain concept about what the logistics industry was. That's changed now, now that I've spent time in it. But it's only around that sort of education that I've gone through that's enabled me to understand, you know, which organisation, what the challenges are they facing, how they're looking to address this and what the support's needed. But I think a lot of it comes down to that knowledge and education piece. Yes, I would agree. And I mean, one of the things I often tell some of my members that are perhaps a little more sceptical about what the opportunities are around this whole decarbonisation piece. Well, if you do actually go down that route and fully embrace it, you know, it's actually quite a draw to people that might not have considered logistics as an operation if they've got very strong green credentials, as many younger people actually do have. And driving a nice clean van may be appealing. But I tell you what, if you actually have somebody in their 20s that are into their IT, explaining to them about all the actual IT technologies that our industry now relies on so heavily these innovations aren't just about wheels and trucks on the ground it's about a whole system change and so there are really some amazing opportunities for people that want to sort of try this out 
I think it's a very interesting point you made there, Denise. I think, and there's a, a couple of points I'd like to bring. We've not really, I suppose, touched on the whole, you know, the climate crisis. Let's be honest, we are in a climate crisis. I've been working in this space for 30 years, and it finally seems that we've, we've woken up in the last few years to what we face. But I think that Generation X, Generation Z, the, the millennials that, are, that are, are sort of fundamentally going to be driving a lot of this change, they're not going to go and work for companies if they aren't addressing the net zero and the climate agenda. I was speaking to somebody earlier today who works for a very, very large, well-respected law firm, and they're genuinely concerned because they are no longer getting the best of the best coming into their organisation because of the stance at the top of the business around supporting the fossil fuel industry. So I think if you've got organisations like that worrying, then rather than being concerned about it from a logistics perspective, is a massive opportunity to embrace create a whole new dynamic environment for the you know young youngsters to come into yes how do you feel about that nick because you've worked in sustainability a long time too haven't you <laughs> i have far too long it's a real challenge to get people to see it as you know the logistics sector as a real green credentials area but i think that's something we can build on and i think we are building on it we're running these campaigns constantly and, and getting as many young people in as possibly can you know we've got our grad schemes in place and I'm, i know that's the case across the whole sector we're getting some real talented people coming in and we listen to what they say, you know, and we take that on board in terms of like creating what's the new policies within the, the executive level and all the rest of it and pushing it down that way. It is happening, but businesses tend to work that way. But I think that it's something that will gain momentum and it certainly seems to be gaining momentum from what I can see. And you're right, you know, I've been around the sustainability space for 15, 16 years at least. And I've seen huge changes in, in that period of time. And the last three years in particular, you know, talking about bringing the new generation in now, Matt, it is starting to get to that point where, you know, if the companies aren't thinking about that, nobody's even going to take them on. Even if you offer a lot more money than the competitors, they're not going to take it on. So you've got to be more savvy about how you put the message across there, but be fully transparent about what it is that you're doing. If you're not achieving your targets, just tell them that. But tell them we're doing this to try and get to that point and, and, and get where we want to be. You know, so everybody realises there's, there's an issue to address, but you've really got to get on board with your communication to your staff and your, your stakeholders and get them involved into it. And it isn't all about money. I think it's a really valid point there you make, though, Nick, is around being transparent. There's obviously a lot at the moment we talk around greenwashing and green wishing, but I think there isn't an organisation out there that's got a net zero yet. There are some that are claiming because they're offsetting and that sort of side of things there. You know, some would say cheating a bit, but, uh, you know, that's for obviously... You know, it's 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 a, it's a way it's being reported, but fundamentally nobody's got there yet, and so we're all on this journey together. And so I, I think there's a prime opportunity to actually just be very transparent, and being honest. We yeah. we're trying stuff, and do you know what? When when we work with organisations trying to deploy innovation, funnily enough, not all of it works, but at least the organisations we work with try something. If you're going to try it, you need to understand what the risks are, you know, what the costs are, to be able to make best choice you can make today. But fundamentally. You know, give it a try, and then if yeah, if it doesn't work, then hopefully you're going to save somebody else a bit of time and effort by helping them on their journey. I think another element to that is this collaboration space, and we've been discussing that a lot in terms of working with our peers and and you bringing them together, Matt. I think that is a key thing because that extends that transparency as well. You know, so people can see coming into the sector, oh look, they're actually doing something. Everything's being published. You know, we're getting out there and and, and do what we need to do. But the the conversations which happen in in the, in the background. They're extremely open and frank, you know, as to, as to what we're doing. Some of the things that get shared actually are quite astonishing, to be fair. A bunch of competitors, but it is that whole dialogue that happens that needs to happen 
and to engage people. And then from that, you get an awful lot of transparency and openness and talking to people coming into the sector. I've worked for Logistics UK now for over four years. I came from a small business environment and I have been really pleasantly surprised at just how much information sharing goes on, particularly from the early adopters. And I think there is sometimes when you've worked in a field for a while to assume that other people know as much as you do. One of the very key lessons I learned very quickly is that even if it's just little that I've learned, I share it as quickly as I can with members because I can guarantee 90% of them won't have seen it. And it then fires up the other conversations about where do we go next? You know, it's that nugget of information. It's that being open and transparent and generous with the information sharing because we need our big companies to be the early adopters in many ways because they are the ones that possibly have the bigger wherewithal to actually take a few more risks. But the ones that I've been talking to that have been doing that, they want to help the smaller people in their supply chain as well because we've got a scope three coming in next year for big companies, haven't we? And if we don't help our smaller suppliers, we're actually going to struggle to actually fill all those reports that we're going to have to do quite soon on that green accounting and the supply chain. So I just wondered what your feelings are about how those are, are being made more challenging as well. Have you come across that? The other element to it is certainly that piece you were just saying there about engaging with the SMEs within your supply chain. That is absolutely critical in terms of the way you need to get to. Let's set aside scope three for a minute, but just talking about as a successful business, as operators, we will all flex down into the subcontractor model to a greater or lesser extent. So if we can't bring them along on the journey with us, then we can't flex our business model. So we've got a real issue there. So we need to be doing as much as we can to support them going from there. And that can be anything from dealing with the big client, us as the free PL, then bringing all the SMEs into a room and just having an open conversation and saying, what do you need us to do to help you? Do you need us to take on the technology and then prove it to you and share that information with you? Is it as simple as that? Or does it go beyond that and actually get you involved with projects as some kind of a funding model that sits there? So there's that element that sits with it too. But collaboration from this space it is a massive opportunity and it's also necessity in terms of needing to get there. You know, we, we can't just leave the SME sector to itself because it just won't move at the same pace. So we need to move the SME sector along at the same pace as what we're moving. That can be a real challenge because, you know, a lot of the companies are growing and going out of business and, and you know, reforming, but they can become the larger companies over a period of time. There's that risk element that sits with it too. From a sector point of view, you've got to be able to take that chance and move it forward from there. I think the interesting thing from my perspective is that uh, it's been quite eye-opening, to be honest, the, the group that we brought together with HGV Zero, just how open they are. You know, we obviously operate within Chatham House rules, so it is a sort of safe space, but the level of openness between competing organisations is great. Fundamentally, it's because the challenge is so large and complex. We're suddenly bringing in a whole load of new stakeholders that many have never had to engage with, the energy companies. You know, you're looking at issues around really significant capital investments. What other funding structures are out there? I can't hold these assets on my own balance sheet. So how do I look at being innovative around the commercial model? There is a wall of money out there. I've spent the last six or seven years with a finance community sort of offering translation services between sustainability and finance world. There is a wall of cash wanting to come into this space, but we've just got to understand what they need. And then is that going to meet the needs or how do we tweak the model to meet the needs that we have to then enable that cash or liberate that cash and to enable them capital to be deployed in the assets that we need. 
to extend that a little bit further, Matt, I think there's a real appetite on the investor side of it too to get into this yeah. space. They see an opportunity for a really growth sector, you know. So I think there is a real a difficult door to push on to get that investment in place. I would recommend to anybody to get out there and speak to as many people as you can from an investment point of view. Get out to events because they're always there. People are always there to talk to. Get there and, and, and see what's what's available and have that conversation. And I would also advise don't be too worried about saying silly things. You know, be bold. You use the phrase translation there, Matt. And traditionally, Logistics UK has largely dealt with DFT and probably a bit of DEFRA as well, perhaps a bit of Department for Education. But we haven't tended to have much engagement with Bayes and the energy regulators or the energy companies. And I would say probably one of the biggest hurdles there is actually a, a language issue because it's a completely new industry. It's got its own jargon. They don't understand our sector and we don't understand theirs very well. And I think we have got to get together. But as a point of optimism, I would say this is actually almost going back to perhaps the 90s when we were start all developing IT skills. And that was a new language. And anybody that could code on a computer were considered magicians. And everybody was sort of trying to work out how these new objects in our offices were actually going to work. It's only 30 years ago since they started appearing and look how fast we've come. And no one can actually do any of their work now without these magic boxes. And IT is now a commodity in many ways, but we need to actually not be so frightened of these big new changes and actually try to embrace them and accept that you're going to get a few things wrong. Because as the old saying goes, if you don't break any eggs, you don't make any (laughs) omelettes. That could be a fundamental difference between an operating model as it sits now and where we need to be from the future. So it goes back to skills, bringing people in with the right sets of skills. It goes back to looking at the innovation space. You know, how much more do we need to do from an R&D point of view? Do we need to create new R&D budgets within our organisations? Do we need to go out to the market to get the investment specifically for that R&D? You know, it's, it's that whole kind of mindset change that's there. If you think about this as a sobering piece of assessment we did recently, we changed all of our HGV fleet at the moment over to electricity, to everything went electric trucks, we'd have to increase our energy demand by more than 50 times across our entire estate. Well, that's a, a completely new ball game for us. We haven't got the skill set at the moment to be able to take that on board, but we're learning as quickly as we possibly can, and we're getting the skilled people in to do that with us. And I would so say the energy companies actually can't cope with us all doing it in one go, which is why it needs the early adopters to start stressing out the system so we know where the extra reinforcement needs to go. We can actually phase that in. It's not a good idea to do your whole fleet in one go. It's much better to phase it through, have a proper process in so you can learn from the phase before and make adjustments. And it also means that you can carry your workforce with you better because if you do it all in one big go, you scare the living daylights out of people very often. It might feel like it's nicer to just rip the plaster off, but in the business world, it's not really the best way forward. Yeah, we've finally got onto a topic that's in my wheelhouse, the whole energy world, having spent 20 years in it. I think the interesting thing is that there's no doubt about the electrification of the UK is, is, is obviously going to see a massive change in the next 20 or 30 years. But it's not going to happen overnight. It's interesting talking to National Grid yesterday. We, we just need to profile out what this is going to look like. They understand that the change is happening. They know they're going to have to dramatically increase the capacity of the, of the grid network. They know there's going to be something like 50 to 60 gigawatts of extra renewable energy deployed in the next 10 to 15 years, if not more. So we all know it's happening, but it's just a question of working together to make sure that we can roll it forward without getting fewer hiccups along the way. 
Again, going back to my point around the renewable space, when we were first trying to get the first solar farms up and running, very expensive technology, you know, lots of unknown unknowns. Within 12 years, 12, 15 years, it's an asset class. It's an investment class. It's, it's business as usual. There's rules and regs. You go to an investor. This is my site. This is my planning. This is my connection. This is my cost. This is working great. Tick, 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 tick. Here's the money and away we go. Didn't take long. Admittedly, it's an easier space than necessarily the logistics world. But if we take that mindset, there's no reason why we can't accelerate in the, in the same way. Yes, I totally agree. I think about some positive embracing, but going back to Nick's point about the collaboration in those safe spaces, yes, under Chatham House rules, being mindful of, you know, not sharing commercially sensitive information, etc. But also sometimes having those spaces available to actually share with others what's gone wrong and not being ashamed, because obviously companies don't want to sort of flag, oh, we got this wrong, we made a mistake. But I have seen more discussions about the charge points. Don't buy too many actual charge points. The technology gets obsolete very quickly. We've got a problem in repairing them. They get broken easily. We need to share that information so that the actual standard of manufacture for those charge points works better in a commercial vehicle depot, because it is quick turnover of vehicles. Things get thrown around. They've got to be robust. And it's sometimes it can come down to something quite as prosaic as whether you've actually got a piece of plastic that doesn't break too quickly. We've talked a lot about the further reaching concerns and the 2050 deadlines, the 2040 phase out dates for the heaviest vehicles. What do we need to be doing right now before we even get to the first of those phase out deadlines in the heavy vehicle space? So from my perspective, we need to be testing it, but testing it at scale. It's no good just do odd ones and twos. You need to be doing multiples and getting them in the space. So I'll take a depot, for example. You might have 50 trucks run out of the depot, certainly as a larger organisation. You need to be running at least half of those vehicles on a new type of fuel, hydrogen or electricity. You need to be doing it and you need to be putting the charges in there. You need to be testing them, but you need to be putting in a range of charges so you can assess each one and do it that way. And then have some kind of an agreement with the suppliers that you could potentially move on to a different one. So you need to be testing as many technologies as you can and learning them lessons. You're going to fall over without a shadow of a doubt, but now is the time to do it and not do it at too big a scale where it's going to be too much of an impact. That's the key lesson for me at this stage in the short term. I think the one for me would be, it comes down to a, a question that was asked of me yesterday, was it the infrastructure or the wheels that we need to look at? And I'll go infrastructure every day. That's going to take time. And if we're not on it now and you miss your window and suddenly you do decide that's right, actually, with three years time, I want to go and get a connection to the grid. And suddenly your cost has gone up the spiral by 10 or 15 times. So you're competing yeah. against a lot of other people. But again, by actually putting that investment into your infrastructure, you are actually sending a very strong signal to the manufacturers of the vehicle that that demand will be there. So that should help with their uncertainties, that we've got the right type of vehicles available at the point when we really need them and at quantity and with the right variants as well. Because the one thing about the logistics sector is it's so varied. It never ceases to amaze me the different types of vehicles that are out there and the jobs that they do. Some of them are extremely specialised, others incredibly adaptable. But we need to make sure that we don't lose any of that that we've got now from the fossil fuel vehicle because we want all of that and possibly more in what comes in the future. I think with the one last point I was going to make on the infrastructure side of things, the other thing you've got to remember as well, it's an asset. Once you've got it, you can then be smart around how you deploy it. So if you're not ready to deploy, can you go and find another local organisation that could use that asset? And that's a long-term play. Thank you to Denise, Matt and Dr Nicholas for their time today. 
You can find out more information about the organisations and initiatives mentioned during this panel in the episode description. Or you can head to the SHD Logistics website, shdlogistics.com, and click on the podcast menu. While you're there, why not sign up to our newsletter to get the week's intra logistics news delivered straight to your inbox every Wednesday morning. Thank you for listening to the Logistics Podcast. See you again soon. Thank you.